Well, if you have a Bible, I would invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, page 810 in the church Bibles, if that would be of some help to you. If you're new or it's been a while, um, we've been working through 1 Corinthians chapter 8, or chapter 1 and following until, since, excuse me, words are all mumbled up here, October of uh, 2014. That's when we started, and so we've been working it verse by verse, took a few pauses here and there. And so the reason why we're in verse 4 and to the end of chapter this morning is just because that's the place we're supposed to be. So just keep that in mind as you're, as you're listening. I'm going to read from the Bible and we're going to pray. And when we're through this morning, if you have a question about anything that has happened this morning or a question about Jesus, I'd be happy to try to answer those questions for you. Well, let's hear the word of the Lord. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols... We know that an idol is nothing at all in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. But not everyone knows this. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat such food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to an idol. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat and no better if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your freedom does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone with a weak conscience sees you who have this knowledge eating in an idol's temple... Won't he be emboldened to eat what has been sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother from whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against your brothers in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause him to fall. Amen. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Let's bow together. Let's pray. Well, gracious God, we have sung to you. And now, God, it's time to hear from you through your word, the Bible. And for order to that take place in any way that is reasonable and sensible and helpful, you're going to have to do everything, God. And so we pray to that end now, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Okay. When it comes to the use of our Christian freedom, it is love, says Paul, which is the key to our behavior, not knowledge. Love, Christian love, when it decides things, will decide in the interest of others. Love then sets the limits of our freedom, not knowledge. Knowledge puffs up. That's verses 2 and 3 of chapter 8, but love builds up. And since it's a responsibility of every Christian to be uh, built up or build themselves up in the most holy faith, We must seek that which builds us up. But remember, and this is important, this is not a love on its own is better than knowledge argument. So knowledge isn't necessary at all. That's very silly. Knowledge is necessary because love void of knowledge is either a free-for-all or mushy sentimentalism wherein the people are just hooked on a feeling. But knowledge void of love is nothing more than pride or pharisaical arrogance. So the only way knowledge both received and used will be of any benefit to ourselves and the people around us 
is that when we understand that love then sets the limits of our Christian freedom. Love sets the limits of our freedom. So listen carefully. This means as a Christian that we are not free to do and say and decide what we like. We are, however, free to do and say and decide what we should. Now, if you were with us last time, we learned all this. And if you're honestly thinking this out, then the word of God cuts like a knife because what we're being told here is that it's only when we're not looking out for our own interests, but also the interests of others, that we can genuinely claim to be on the kind of uh, maturity or the road to maturity that Paul is addressing here. In other words, and you know this, it takes no spiritual power to look after your own self-interest. I mean, a two-year-old can do that, right? It takes no power, spiritual power, to decide for yourself. You don't need to be a Christian to do that. But Paul says we're going to need to know that so that the kind of maturity that he's revealing here, if we're going to understand our Christian freedom and its uses and constrainments, we're going to need to know things. Because not everything in the Bible is written down in a list. In fact, I was thinking, that's one of the first questions that was asked me when I came here. Why doesn't the Bible have more lists? Well, the Bible is very, very clear about doing what God requires in our life. Please don't make any mistake about this. And the Bible is also very, very clear about what God forbids in our life. And again, make no mistake about that. But there are many things the Bible doesn't mention specifically at all. And in my own experience, those are the things which some Christian fellowships get themselves all tied up in knots over. And so what they do when they do this is they make the secondary things primary and they demote the primary then to secondary. Thus, in the essential things, the things that would serve that kind of church, they don't know. But the non-essential things, they'll go to death for. So the non-essential things become central, and the central things become unimportant, and so they turn things around being so greatly concerned about their own personal freedoms or their own personal rights. And when that happens, the doors of the church then become much, much smaller for people to walk through. And the reason why is because secondary issues, personal issues, have been elevated to primary. And if you're thinking that out, that's probably one of the reasons why a church won't grow. And so the question that Paul is addressing here in the context of food sacrifice to idols is the bigger question, namely, how far does my Christian freedom extend in behavior not specifically mentioned in the Bible? That's the question. How much freedom do I have in relation to things that the Bible doesn't expressly forbid or call for? Because it's very, very clear that the Christian does have freedom. Our freedom is real. Uh, Jesus, John's Gospel, chapter 8, verse 32. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. Paul, Galatians 5. You have been set free. See to it that no one may tie you up again in bondage. So the Christian freedom is a real freedom. But our freedom is constrained. And part of that constraining is found in our relationship with our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Let's look at verse 9. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights, your freedoms, does not become a stumbling block to the weak. Now, if you're listening, you would say, well, how would you know? How would you know if my freedom is, not, is becoming a stumbling block to the weak? Well, one of the ways you would know is because you are authentically tied in the fellowship, right? So you're just not coming in and going out and coming in and going out. You're authentically tied to the fellowship so that you know your brothers and sisters well. Therefore, since our knowledge is at best limited, 
if we move and act and think on the basis of knowledge alone, or if we move and think and act on the basis of our personal freedoms, our personal rights alone, what Paul would tell us is that we'll get puffed up, but we will not grow up. And a puffy Christian, in my experience, is usually a huffy, puffy Christian. And that could be trouble. So that takes us then to our first point, two lines to avoid. That's the point that if you can see in the back of your worship folder, you'll see them there. So clearly there's two groups in operation in these verses, and each group have tendencies. The one group's tendencies leans towards legalism. The other group's tendencies leads, uh, leans towards um, license. So on the one hand, you have legalism. And legalism is an approach to Christian living that turns absolutely everything into rules. It knows nothing of principles. It knows nothing of making application of the Bible in a way that is true to the Bible, but rather it makes application of the Bible in just a strictly wooden way. For example, verse 5. They would read that line about so-called gods and lords, and they would say, oh, are there other gods? Are there other lords? The Bible says there are. And so they go to the Bible not as a student on their knees, but they go to the Bible as one who's made up their mind already, and they're just looking for a few verses to confirm what they already know is true. Legalism then develops a long list of do's and don'ts, and the list of do's and don'ts, and here's the thing, it varies from place to place. So, for example, if you go from one legalistic congregation to another, you'll quickly find what was good and right and true in one church is not good and right and true in another. What was applauded in one place can be frowned upon in other. So you may score an A in one church, but then you get an F in the other, and you're not sure the reason why that is so. And the reason why it's so is because you don't know their list. So you're confused until they show you their list, and you say, okay then, now I know. I didn't know that this was a no alcohol, no dancing, only frugality kind of church. I didn't know that you had to be conservative to move among the people. I didn't know that you couldn't wear stretchy pants in church. I didn't know that. Now I do. So you see, in this context, spirituality is then judged with your willingness to keep up with their man-made list. And if you live this way, loved ones, you're not ordering your life by the Spirit of God. You're ordering your life by the rules of man. So then your, your spirituality can be mistaken, and actually it becomes really, really easy. You give me the list, I'll keep the list outwardly. Thenceforth, I am very, very spiritual. In other words, the man pays his tithe. He shows up to church, he serves a bit, and everything's okay. But you see, in his heart, he's greedy for money. He's absent in evangelism. And public worship is a score sheet to mark on. And he would never set aside his life. He would never set aside his freedoms for the heart good deep of others. But he keeps his list. Yeah, but his heart is all mangled up. He feels superior to everyone because he does keep his list. So listen, tell me what's easier. Is it easier to keep a list or conquering inner pride, inner lust, inner greed, impatience? Which is easier? What's easier, outward conformity and speech and demeanor or inward transformation of heart good affection towards the most unruly of our fellow man? What's easier, to put money in a box or halt all your pleasures in order to invest our life in the life of others in some meaningful way for the glory of Jesus Christ? Loved ones, lists are easy. Therefore, Legalism stifles freedom, 
It confuses conscience. It limits the word of God. And it diminishes the power of the Holy Spirit in a believer's life. And legalism is a pit. It's a pit. And many churches fall into it. That's legalism. We must avoid it. The other line we are devoid as we think about Christian freedom is, is license. Or the theological word, to let you know that I did my studying this week, antinomianism, right? Anti, against, nomos, nomi, law. And this is essentially, there's no rules. And everything's fine to do. Freedom is absolute and it's unqualified and personal preference rules. Therefore, if you decide on the basis of your own conscience and your conscience is good with it, then by golly, do it. It's fine. As long as you feel good about what you're about to do, then by golly, do it. It's fine. And so when you move in that group, what you'll find is that these people use their freedom. And when they use their freedom, they're neglecting some of the very clear do's and don'ts of the word of God. So license says, I can do what I want, when I want, uh, and in some cases with whoever I want, because I'm free in Jesus Christ. And the person says, since I'm forgiven in Jesus Christ, this is great. Because not only the bad things I'm about to do are forgiven, I'll be free to do them all over again as I please. Hey, hey, I like this stuff. I like it a lot. But license is a curse. It's perversion. It's a heresy. And if you follow that line, it will sell you short at the judgment. Okay, so then what are we left with? Well, we're left with Christianity. We're left with the gospel. We're left with the fact that in our place condemned Christ stood. We're left with the fact that James referred to this in chapter 1 verse 25. The perfect law that gives freedom. And loved ones, this is the great Christian paradox. Make me a captive, Lord, and then I will be free. Force me to render up my sword, and then conqueror I shall be. So freedom, true Christian freedom, is discovering the liberating power of being in the privileged state of complete bondage to Jesus Christ. I'm going to say that again. True Christian freedom is discovering the liberating power of being in the privileged state of absolute, complete bondage to Jesus Christ, which in turn then releases us in love to our fellow brothers and sisters, which will in turn determine the things that we say yes and no to not because of a list of a man-made list of rules and regulations, but on the basis of biblical love. And you see, biblical love says, of course there are rules to keep. The Ten Commandments being one of them. But not to be saved, but because we are saved. And because you love Christ. And Jesus Christ always equated love for him to obedience to him. So license is a pit. Legalism is a pit. There's no list of rules and regulations that can change a human heart, not even the Ten Commandments. Only Jesus can change the human heart. And when the Spirit of God moves within that heart, confirming the Word of God, it will set us on a proper way. License, horrible. Legalism, just as worse. And when a church begins to get this right, now I want you to think with me here. When a church begins to get this right, humility will abound. It will be a much quieter place. It will be a much happier place. It will be more seamless in service, much more efficient in its work because it puts the main and plain things ahead of everything and then it begins to move at a good pace. It's not sloshing through everything. Better be careful that I don't knock that down. It's not sloshing through everything because it's like, oh, what does that say? Who does that say? What do they want? Blah, blah, blah. Ugh. 
and it becomes a very inviting place. Okay, that's our first point, two lines to avoid, legalism and license. Secondly then, you'll see this in the Bible, verse 4b, four truths to embrace. And so what Paul does, he gives four facts that are true and central if we're going to understand this idea of Christian freedom in this context. So fact number one, verse 4b, an idol is nothing all in the world. Okay, the problem was food sacrifice to idols. Paul begins to unpack the problem. The first thing he does is he gives them some knowledge. Okay, one group, food sacrifice to idols, no big deal. The other group, food sacrifice to idols, is a really big deal. It's a divisive issue. They sent him the question. They want to make a good decision. He gives them knowledge. Hey, guys, I want to tell you that an idol is nothing at all in the world. The same thing Paul preached in Ephesus. Man-made gods... Or no gods at all. There's only one God. We'll get to that in a minute. I want you to listen to your Bible. Uh, Psalm 115. Which, which happened to be, I told this in the first service. Psalm 115 is actually uh, the day that my son Jared was dedicated. I preached from Psalm 115. So that's kind of neat that that happened. Anyway, Psalm 115. Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. But their idols are silver and gold made by human hands. They have mouths but can't speak, eyes but can't see, ears can't hear, noses can't smell, hands can't feel, feet can't walk, nor can they utter a sound with their throats. And those who make them will be like them, lifeless. And so will all who trust in them. In other words, Paul is saying plainly that idle stuff is absolutely ridiculous. An idol is nothing. Now, we'll see in chapter 10, Lord willing, that the idol activity is actually demonic activity. But for now, Paul just establishes the fact. Verse 5, these things are so-called gods or so-called lords. They're not real. The heathen world of Paul's day worshipped idols. Paul says, whatever power you may think they had or even feel like they had, it was nothing. It was fantasy. It wasn't real. Fact number one, an idol is nothing at all. Fact number two, there's only one God. Paul says this in verse 4, verse 6. Verse 4, there is no God but one. Verse 6, if your Bible is open, look at this. Yet for us, there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. And the fact that there is no God but one would have been something that Paul, as Saul, would probably have taught, been taught by his dad. Right? We just read the Shema. Every good Jewish dad would teach their children, their sons, specifically these truths. So maybe Paul, Saul, excuse me, Saul's dad would say, son, come here. I'm going to put you on my lap. It's a good picture, right? Now I want you to look at me and I want you to listen to me. And I want you to know this and I want you to remember this. There is no God. Excuse me. There is only one God. That's the Shema. The Lord our God is one. Now, Saul, you say that to me. Okay, Dad. The Lord our God is one. Okay, Saul, say it again and remember it. Okay. The Lord our God is one. That's good, Saul. Nice job. So it's not only in Awana that should be taking place, right? It should be taking place at the home. And so Paul then, having come to faith in Jesus Christ, he would have put all this stuff together and he would understand that his monotheistic understanding of God, the Lord, was now tied to Jesus Christ. That's why he says what he says in verse 6. The Father and Son are equal in authority, glory, and power. They differ in function, yes, equal in authority, glory, and power. The Father, verse 6, from whom all things came and for whom we live. The Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. So God is his saner, and sustainer, creator, and sustainer of everyone and everything. 
and his creative and sustaining power is mediated through our Lord Jesus Christ. And loved ones, that is why the statement, Jesus Christ is Lord, is such a massive, significant, true statement. Because what Jesus was in time, God is throughout all eternity. So when you talk to people and they say, well, I just know God my way. Maybe you're here and this is the way you operate. Well, I want to know God my way. So I like to go to the mountains. I like to go to the woods, to the lake. And I get together with God my way. Or I like to do God. Or I like to think about God my way. Or I like to think about my way being that all roads lead to God. That's my way. And so the Bible would say that is utter foolishness. The Bible would say, what in the dickens are you talking about? I mean, not literally wouldn't say that, but that's what the Bible would say. It's not true. You can affirm it all you want, but it's a lie. We only have one God, and it is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it is through Christ that we come to the Father. And it's through Christ that we have life in Him. Listen to your Bible, 1 John chapter 5, verse 10. If you're a hearty evangelist, you'll probably need to know this verse. Whoever does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because they have not believed the testimony God has given about his son. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. Period? Yeah, period. Fact number one, excuse me, an idol is nothing at all. Fact two, there's only one God. Fact number three, verse eight, food does not bring us near to God. And so you might look at verse eight and you go, boy, how silly were they? How silly it is to think this way. Okay, that's fine, but don't be snooty. I've talked to some ladies in our context that went to other places in other contexts and the underlying theme of the talk that they went to was, hey, hey, your body's a temple. And hey, hey, if you eat right, you're going to feel better and you'll be closer to God. So hey, hey, if you go on the Jesus diet, okay, get on this Jesus diet and guess what's going to happen? You're going to be closer to God. You're going to feel closer to God and you're going to be closer to God because your body's a temple. Now, there might be all kinds of other notions like that in a place like this of what, what brings us near to God. So let me ask you this. Do you think that because you had a good week that you are near to God? Do you think that you're much closer to God when you had a good week than when you had a bad week like I did this week? I'm not asking you how you feel. I'm asking you the truth. Do you think that you'll ever be more acceptable to God than you are this morning? We might be more useful, but how about acceptable? We'll never be more acceptable because our acceptance before God is based on the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And because his finished work is a finished work, we will never be more acceptable than we are right now to God. So that when we stand before God, when I stand before God and he looks at me and he says, Hey, Joseph, why should I let you in? No matter how much I may or may not advance in Christian graces. The only thing that I'll say as I look at my father in heaven. I'll say, well, you know the truth. I'm a great sinner. And Jesus Christ is my great savior. And the father will look at me and say, boy, That boy, you come on in. You see, these people were confused. Some thought that if they didn't eat idle meat, they were going to be better. And others thought that if they did eat idle meat, they were be better. 
Just like now. Some think that if I do more good, then I'm going to be better with God. If I go on that mission trip, then I'll be nearer to God. Some think that if I do more spiritual stuff, then I'll be better and nearer to God. Let me ask you, who is loving who in that equation? Do you understand that? Who is loving who? Paul says, fact, verse 8, we are no worse if we do eat food sacrificed to idols, and we are no better if we don't, because food does not make us nearer to God. There's no secondary issue, no freedom that we can achieve, nothing that we can do to make us nearer to God. So you understand what's happening then in this church, in Corinth. What was secondary, food, became primary. And what was primary, you are accepted by God, not on the basis of your personal performance, but only on the infinite righteousness of Jesus. That became secondary. Hence, people did things to earn God's favor. Hence, the division. What group are you in? The meat group or the no meat group? And that happens a thousand different ways in the life of Jesus' church. And that takes us then to fact number four, verse 12. When you sin against them, you sin against your weaker brother or sister. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. And loved ones, that is where the rubber meets the road. This is why I personally, personally had so much trouble with this. Such a convicting message to myself. So clearly Paul is laying down the fact that the issue of Christian freedom is not merely a personal matter. Both our attitudes and our actions have a bearing on our brothers and sisters' life. And Christ died for them. In fact, our attitudes and our actions and our choices has such a bearing on people that if we get it wrong, if we get it wrong in the church with our brothers and sisters in Christ, we're actually, verse 12, sinning against Jesus Christ himself. Which is why I said last time, and I'm going to say it again, this is what's so difficult about living in a free society. Because we may be under the notion that our constitutional freedom may be tied to our personal freedom and our personal entrance even in God's kingdom. But Paul says, no, it is not. It is not. So the negative side of this, any offense we advance on our brothers and sisters who are in Christ, we're actually offending Jesus Christ. But the positive side, and think about this, the positive side is that any good that we do to our brothers and sisters, this is great. Any good that we do, we're actually doing to Jesus Christ. It's a good thought, right? So none of us have then any right to look down on each other. Yeah, our personalities may differ. We understand that. It's easier to get along with some people than others. You should understand that. But we have no right to put down or look down on each other. And that's what Paul's saying. This is his argument. Christianity is a high calling. My brother or sister is someone from whom Jesus died. I must treat them as such. No one is unimportant in the church of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is in every Christian, weak or strong. What I do and say to them is what I do and say to them. The same thing in the church. What I do and say for Ed is what I would do and say for him. That's basic theology. Therefore, when it comes then to the use of our Christian freedom, we are not free to do what we want, but we are free to do what Jesus wants. And by way of principle, what Jesus wants is to treat one another with care and treat each other like we would want to be treated ourselves. So that means there's no place for the venomous blow in the life of the church. There's no place for puffy chest people to get their way with secondary issues. The careless choices that people would make would wound the conscience of the weak brother or sister. And Paul says, you can't do that. 
Don't do that. So I'm back to where I began. That's why the life of the church is a real life. It's real. We've got to really know each other then to know when we are offending or not offending. It can't be easy, PC, Japanesey. I'll do what I want. Serve a little here. Go away. Come back and do it all again week by week. It's much more than that. It's much more than that. Listen to John Stott. Those who profess to have certain rights and liberties must at times refrain from the use of them in a variety of areas in order not to be the means of causing weaker brothers and sisters to stumble. The stronger believer then cannot simply serve their own vital interest. Their desires, their enjoyments are of little consequence as compared to the spiritual growth of their weaker brother or sister in Christ. Now, if you're listening to that, that may mean that we cannot decide to do X because of our weaker our brother and sister. And I just wonder, and I'm speaking to myself first, I wonder, have we ever had to make a decision like that in our Christian existence? Have we ever had to do that? So the whole issue then is verse 7. Look at there. Not everybody knows these truths. Not everybody knows these four facts. For the weak, their pre-Christian days, when they were marked by idol worship, they would go into that idol temple, and they, it was such a strong influence over them. Even in Christ, they're having trouble getting over the idol hump. They, they still might have feelings and fears because of what took place in that temple. And they can't deal with this food, so they won't eat it. Let me give you an example. I think it will help. Most of you know that I love all kinds of music. I love popular music. And I often quote lyrics from popular music. And for me, popular music does not associate in my mind sex and drugs and wild living at all. Okay, so whenever I think about popular music, to be honest with you, this is the truth. I always think about when I was a kid in my bedroom and, and I would listen to the radio all night long. So I wonder if I got any sleep. And I would listen to all the things that were popular and I would just be having my own little mini concert in my room, right? So for me, popular music is no problem at all. But I know that some people have come to faith in Jesus Christ and they came out of the background. When they think about popular music, it does make them think of sex and drugs and wild living. I mean, that was their reality. And they can't handle these lyrics. Therefore, that fact puts a restraint on my liberty to use it. So if I want to say, uh, Paul McCartney, uh, maybe I'm amazed at the way uh, you love me all the time. Right? Maybe I'm afraid of the way I love you too. When I want, if I want to say that, and I'm thinking about good and happy things, maybe I'm thinking about my wife, maybe not, who knows? Just had to throw that in, sorry. But Mr. X can't deal with it. Because when he hears those lyrics, he thinks about his ex-wife. So then, for his good, and for God's glory, I shut the whole thing down. I set aside my freedom. And I don't talk to him and say, what's wrong with you? You can't let me do lyrics. No. Just shut it down. It's okay. It's okay. Therefore, verse 10, Paul says, and this is very, very important, crazy important. If those who have a weak conscience, those who are limited in their level of maturity, see those eating in idol temples who have a growing level of maturity, won't they be tempted to go back in the idol temples? The Bible says yes. See, that's the underlying notion that's happening here. The weaker brother or sister, they can't handle that vision. Do not let them have it. 
So because they can't handle this, the weaker Christian who goes down, down that line has their uh, past being dragged up. Those old vibes are kicking in again. They'll be destroyed by the stronger Christian's use of their knowledge. Which simply means this. The improper use of freedom may even be a temptation to draw that person back to their pre-converted lifestyle. See, that's why in verses 10 and 11, Paul uses such harsh words, destructive words. They will be destroyed by the stronger Christian's knowledge. My freedom that I'm using wrong may drive them back, drag them back to the very thing that Jesus Christ saved them from. And when we do that, we sin against Christ. And Paul says we cannot do this. Let me say this before we get to our final point. That's probably one of the reasons why a church won't grow. Because think with me, who wants to be around people who are always used to thinking and getting their way? Always thinking about themselves, always thinking about them, their rights. Guys, be honest. Who wants to be around that? I don't. Final application, one to make. And this is not my application, it's Paul. Verse 9, be careful that the exercise of your freedom does not become a stumbling block to the weak. The weak. Now here we go, right? The weak. They are just so slow. And they don't know how to behave. And they're always causing problems because they're so weak. Yeah, but God has a place in his heart for the weak. And God chose, 1 Corinthians 1, God chose the weak things of this world to shame the strong. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the wise. You see, God in his heart has a preference for the weak. And that's Paul's application. Be careful with those whose faith is not as stout as yours. Uh, Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And love limits your freedom. And Christian freedom is applied within the framework always of loving one another. And loving one another demands care that what we are biblically, truly free to do and will not be held accountable before God may mean that we might have to set aside that freedom for the good of our weaker brother and sister. Now, do you understand this? You might have to halt your liberty for the good of the weak. And I want you to notice that Paul's stress is not on the weaker Christian here. He's not saying, oh, come on now, pick yourself up. What is wrong with you? Stop all this silly meat stuff. Come on, it's just meat. That's not where his stress is. The stress is on the strong. And he says to the strong, you set yourself aside for the weak. And those of you that are strong, you know how hard that is to do. You know how hard that is to do. You have to readjust for the weak. Okay, then someone might ask, okay, what about the weak, right? If they just stay weak, won't they uh, impede the progress of the church? Won't they just make everything so slow? Maybe. Maybe. But listen to Calvin. Calvin discriminates between the, the genuine weak and what he calls, and this is Calvin, tough giants who want to play the tyrant and put our freedom under their control. They're not being led into sin by weakness. They're simply eager to find fault with others. What he's saying, they're just playing games. This calls for great spiritual discernment, especially from the leadership, even in the home, because you have to know whether the child has a genuine concern that is real or they're just trying to manipulate the family. Right? Playing head games with mom and dad. 
so they can throw their little fit. And that's why God gives parents and leaders discernment. There will be some genuine need in in this with others, but some who are just a royal pain in the neck are playing games so they can find fault with everything and play the tyrant. And you can't do that. So listen carefully. Those with strong conscience are usually more assertive, they're usually more self-assured, and they're usually used to getting their own way. And Paul shows self-giving Calvary love when he says, look at verse 13. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother to fall into sin, if that secondary issue, if my personal freedom causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again. I'll never do that secondary thing again. I'll never use that freedom again so that I will not cause them to fall. Now, this might be too simple for some of us, but this is the way I like to think about it. Surrender to Christ, then, is the key to Christian freedom. And it's almost like what our parents told us about good manners. Isn't it? The good manners, you go first. It's okay. You're first. It's fine. You're number one. It's okay. You see? And we go back to what I've said before. You think about this in the life of any church. The outsider comes into place, and we're just, <laughs> you're doing it wrong. You're doing it wrong. We don't do that. You're doing it wrong. I don't like that. You're doing it wrong. How long would you like to be in a place like that? How long? Christian freedom is a big deal. This sermon caused me angst all week, just personal repentance, a lot I had to do. Think these things through. Think them through. They, they really... They really matter. Let's pray together. Well, Father, we thank you that your love is broader than the measure of our mind and the heart, your heart, Father, is most wonderfully kind. And God, I love you this morning because you do take special interest in the weak. You say again and again that when we're weak, we're actually strong. And most of us know, God, that when we go down that strength line, it just brings so much trouble and so much pain and, and potentially so much sin. So we would pray for the grace to truly understand these things in these days, that we can make a sensible application in our life as we go about from day to day, and specifically in the life of the church as we rub shoulders with our brothers and sisters from whom Christ died for. Oh God, we thank you for this great privilege that we had this morning. And we would ask your blessing on the, over, the, over the remainder of our day. And we would ask you that you would give that blessing simply for Jesus' sake. Amen.